0: Good morning everyone. <laughs> it's a joy to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke again this morning. If you're visiting with us today or new here this morning, we started going through the Gospel of Luke and seeing what we can learn, what God has to teach us from this uh, book of the Bible. One of the things, even in spending five months in Luke's gospel, there is so much in here. It's such a long book that we still are going to have to skip over a lot of the passages. We can't hit everything, unfortunately. And so uh, we're going to be sort of hopscotching over different passages as we go through Luke. But as we do that, we don't want to lose track of the overall narrative of Jesus's life and, and the story that Luke is trying to tell us or is telling us in his gospel. And so in order to do that, we're going to have to maybe stop a couple places and, and focus on some little things that won't be the main bulk of our sermons. I would encourage you all, as always, when we go through a book of the Bible, read it yourself at home. Open up the gospel of Luke, read it, start at the beginning, read through to the end. That is often the most fruitful way to read Scripture. To just start at the front of a book and go all the way to the end, the way it was written, the way it was intended to be read. And you will gain so much more from it from doing it that way. So I would encourage you to do that. Read Luke. You've got several more months. You should be able to cover it in that time. So, that being said, before we get to our passage for today, which is Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we are going to stop and make a quick stop in Luke chapter 4 because it's a really important passage for luke's gospel and for his whole gospel and so that's why we're going to look at it we actually looked at this passage back at the very beginning of advent we preached on this uh reference from isaiah the prophet isaiah that jesus is uh talking about here and luke shares this story so uh, we're going to look at luke chapter 4 and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 21 so you can follow along and it'll be on the slides Uh, but let's pray one more time before we read that the lord would bless our time together Gracious God, our our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks once again, as always, for your word and for the opportunity to gather around your word as the body of Christ. Uh, We thank you that you have uh, spoken to us, Lord, and you continue to speak to us uh, through your word, that it is living and active. Uh, And so, God, we pray, as, as Dan already said, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive whatever it is that you have for us today by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So this is Luke chapter 4, and we're going to start uh, just the very end of verse 16. It says this. um, He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So we we left Jesus last week after his his epic confrontation with the devil in the wilderness, this really well-known passage, and Jesus was tempted three times in the wilderness. Each time he stood firm and remained faithful to his heavenly father. He showed himself to be faithful. And after that, we're told that he returned to Galilee, which is the area that he's from, in the power of the Spirit. Again, we see this in Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus was there in the power of the Spirit, and he started teaching in the synagogues, And word about him started to spread all over the place. And he ends up going back to his hometown of Nazareth, this this small village. And he is visiting the synagogue there, which is the passage that we just saw. And this is a small town or village. So when he's there, people know him. These are the people he's known his entire life. Uh, Maybe some of his relatives are there. These are his friends, uh, people that that have seen him grow up. And so they are not unfamiliar with him. And so when he says these things, uh, they hear it. It differently. The same way that you would hear one of your schoolmates from growing up saying this, or if you're an adult and you've watched a child grow up and they come and they show up, you hear it a little bit differently. And so, like I said, we preached on this passage from Isaiah and how Jesus claims it for himself. This, this uh, prophetic word from Isaiah. In this passage, Jesus is saying, this is about me. I am the one whom God has anointed with his Holy Spirit to come and to preach good news to the poor, deliverance to the captives. I love that we just sang that song earlier today uh, that Alizar picked because it's talking about this passage. It's quoting from this passage. And the reason that we want to stop here before we look at Luke chapter 5 is because we don't want to forget this as we go through Luke. We don't want to forget that Jesus claims this word from Isaiah for himself. Because in a way, Jesus is laying out his mission for us in this passage. It's the lens through which we should look at the rest of his life and ministry as we go through Luke. That this is what he has come to do. The last few weeks in here, uh, we have quoted the verse from Luke chapter 19. It's from the story of Zacchaeus, where Jesus says, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost, which is sort of a a shorter, more succinct way of saying what he has said here in this passage when he's quoting Isaiah. Who are the lost people that Jesus has come to seek out and to save? They are the poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed, He has come to declare a year of Jubilee to these people, the year of the Lord's favor when when debts were forgiven, when slaves were set free, when land was restored to people." And Jesus says that God had anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor. And what's important for us to know is that when when he says this, when we see the word poor in the gospel of Luke, it doesn't just mean people without money or people without economic resources. When we see the word poor in Luke, it's also talking about people who have little or no social standing. These are the poor. These are people who don't have any sort of position in their society and these are exactly the people that we see Jesus interacting with throughout the gospels Uh, these are the people that we see Jesus ministering to throughout his life these are women and and children these are widows and orphans shepherds and fishermen these are people who are disabled people who have chronic illnesses people that nobody else wants to go near or touch These are Samaritans and Gentiles and tax collectors and prostitutes and even criminals and people who are possessed by evil spirits. These are the people who are lost. These are the people who are poor, the people who Jesus has come to seek out and to save. And certainly when we think about that list of people, maybe, maybe just maybe we can find ourselves on that list somewhere. We can put ourselves on that list in some way so that Jesus has come to seek us out and to save us as well. Already, we see uh, in the reaction to his teaching, if you ke- keep reading in this passage, we 'll see that at first people are really excited about this. they love what Jesus has to say, but then they turn on him. and what we see in that is that the gospel has already in the very beginning, what Jesus has come to say and do has been offensive to some people. Not everyone receives it as good news, and particularly those people who it confronts with their sin and their sense of self-righteousness these are the people who most often are opposed to what Jesus has to say in the gospel. And so we see that Jesus, at the end of that passage, he's run out of his hometown by an angry mob, these same people uh, who, that he has grown up with and known for a long time. And from there, Jesus continues his ministry, teaching and, and healing and casting out evil spirits, and word about him continues to spread around Galilee, and people start to follow him around, which brings us to our passage today, our main focus today, which is Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It's a familiar story to many of you, uh, so we're going to w- read this passage now. It says this, one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and they were listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge, two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. And he asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, "'Master, we've been working hard all night, and we haven't caught anything. But because you you say so, I will let down the nets.'" When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and to help them, and they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink." And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the things that I love about Luke is that Luke is a great storyteller. And I I love a good story. I love stories that are told well. Does anybody out there know a good storyteller? Somebody, a friend? Nobody. Nobody. Nobody knows a good storyteller. I won't take offense at that. Okay, we got a couple people. All right. We've got people who tell great stories. And what I love about people who tell good stories is that you could just sit there and listen to the same story over and over again and still enjoy it each time you hear it. Whenever I get together with my college buddies, we always go back to the same stories, the things that happened in college. Uh, The facts may or may not be completely true, uh, and yet we still love hearing stories these stories. And you feel like when you're with a good storyteller, you feel like that you were actually there when the event happened. I have this one friend from, from college and we've stayed friends over the years, and he had this one story that he would tell he called his wrestling story. And I'm not going to tell it now, but the miraculous thing was that somehow he could use it to illustrate any theological point that he wanted to make in a sermon. He could, that story tied in everywhere. So I heard that story many times, loved it every time. And after sp- Spending two months in Luke, I hope what you will see and I hope what we'll continue to see is that Luke is a master storyteller. Luke is, really allows us to get into the passage and, and to experience it almost as if we were there. One of the, the books I've looked at talks about how Mark, Mark is a good storyteller. He tells the story well, but Luke tells it to perfection. Right? And so when we read Luke's gospel, we have these scenes like this one. This is one of the stories for me that really makes that come alive. That we can picture in detail what is happening when Jesus is there at the lake of Gennesaret. There's something about this miraculous catch of fish that can put us right there. And I think what really does it for me with this story in general is that it is a fish story. And I think all of the best stories are fish stories, aren't they? I don't know if this is something that translates to all cultures, but in America, a good fish story, I mean, it is something to behold. And I will say, again, I don't know if it translates everywhere, but I was on a tram a couple months ago, and this Czech gentleman started talking to me, and I had no idea what the words he was saying were, but he started showing me pictures on his phone of the big fish that he had caught. And it made me think, Yes, everybody loves a good fish story. I have learned just enough check through Duolingo, my app, to say Velka riba," right? <laughs> Big fish. I know. I connected. I made a connection. So I was very proud of myself in that moment. This is a great fish story that we have here today. Right? So we, Luke pulls us in right away. He starts the story in the middle of the action. The crowds are pressing in on Jesus. And you can almost feel him being pushed to the, to the shore of the lake. Maybe his feet are starting to go into the water. He's been traveling around Galilee for a little while now, teaching and healing people. And he's, he's built up this reputation for himself. People are starting to follow him. They are seeking him out. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to hear, uh, see what he is doing. People are coming maybe because they hope to be healed, maybe because they want to see something miraculous. But they're also coming to hear what he has to say. They want to hear the word of God. That's what Luke says, that they were coming to hear the word of God that was coming out of Jesus's mouth. These are people who are hungry for it. They're hungry for the gospel, and they know that Jesus has what they're looking for. Again, like what Alazar said this morning, we, we all have a God-sized hole in our hearts that only God can fill. And so when people hear the word of God, it, it is attractive to them often. They, they know that this is something that they need. We've been, just been told a few verses earlier that Jesus says he must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And this is what people are coming to hear, that a a good and holy and just God is taking charge of this broken and sinful, unjust world and is going to redeem it, is going to set things right. And so many people are coming to hear this message that Jesus finds himself in what could be seen as an unpleasant situation, being pressed by the crowds. Maybe there were people on every side of him so that he couldn't move. And I I tend to picture him on the edge of the lake being pushed back into the water, like I said. And then he sees these boats that are right there with him. So he he thinks quickly. He jumps into one of the boats, Peter's boat, and he pushes away from the shore. And all of a sudden, problem solved. And then Jesus starts teaching the crowds from the boat. And he shares with them the good news of the kingdom of God. This message of salvation that people long to hear. I think what's interesting is what these crowds don't realize, of course, at least not yet, is that it is the king himself who is speaking to them about God's kingdom in this situation. And this good news for the poor, deliverance to the captives, sight for the blind that he was telling them about all of the gifts that he himself was going to give to them, that these things were coming through him. Throughout his life, through his death, through his resurrection, all of this, Jesus was going to fulfill for them. And then Jesus wraps up his teaching, and then we go fishing. And I I don't fish that much, I've been a few times, but I've been often enough to have a sense of the, the emotional highs and lows that come along with fishing. Uh, If you've ever been fishing before, then you can relate in some way to Peter and his comrades in this story. Fishing is one of those experiences that it it always holds such great promise on the front end if you're going fishing, because maybe I'll catch a fish. Maybe I'll catch a fish today. Maybe I'll catch a big fish. Maybe, just maybe, I'm going to catch a lot of fish And bring them home. And because of the hope and expectation, it can be either be the source of great frustration or great satisfaction, depending on how it goes for you. If you go fishing a lot, you know oftentimes you come home without anything. And that's just part of it. But it makes it all the more exciting when you catch something. There's nothing quite so disappointing as a day of fishing without a bite. And on the flip side, catching a fish never seems to lose its excitement, especially if it's a big one. I still remember uh, when my son Presley caught his first fish. Uh, We were on vacation one year, and uh, we kind of cheated because we were staying at this place, and you could just pop your pole right by the dock, and you knew you were going to catch something. And Presley caught his first fish, and it was one of the greatest days of my life when he caught his first fish. And then he put his rod in, and he caught Caught another one and then another one and we just kept celebrating and one of the best family pictures we have is of my daughter ella a couple years later catching her first fish and she's just standing there holding her pole with the fish on it with this look of great excitement on her face and presley is behind her mid-air jumping for joy because she has caught this fish i mean this is what fishing is about it can't get any more exciting What I can't relate to is what it's like to go through these ups and downs with fishing as if my livelihood depended on it. And this is what Peter and James and John and the other fishermen are experiencing in this passage knowing that somehow my sustenance my livelihood depended whether on whether i caught something or not knowing that not catching anything one night would have very real consequences for my life and for my family i can't relate to that but that's what's going on in our passage today peter has been fishing all night long and has not caught anything and he's already started to pack up they're cleaning their nets he wasn't they've moved away from the boats peter is tired and he's frustrated He's just pulled an all-nighter, which if you've ever done, you know you're at the end of your rope at that point, and he has nothing to show for it. And so he's brought his boat in, he's ready to go home, and Jesus says, hey, let's go back out in the water, put down your nets one more time, as if this is no big deal. And Peter has got to be thinking, what? What? Now, Peter knows, he knows this isn't going to work because you catch more fish at night than you do in the daytime. And he's been doing all of the things he's supposed to be doing. They didn't catch anything. The only thing it's going to accomplish is making more work for him and getting him home later. But he does it. He does it. He says, Master, because you have said so, we will do this. Now, this isn't the first time that Peter has met Jesus. In the passage just before this one, which we didn't read, we see that Jesus has healed Peter's mother-in-law of a sickness that she had. And so that may explain why he complies with Jesus' command here, rather than responding in a way that we might expect fishermen to respond in a situation like this. He doesn't do that. He says, sure, we'll go, let's do it. But whatever the reason Peter does it, the result is astounding. It's miraculous even. Peter catches a lot of fish. And this is where Luke is so good. Because he doesn't just say that Peter caught a lot of fish. He says that Peter caught so many fish that the nets were breaking. And they had to call in another boat for backup. And yet, even with this other boat, there were still so many fish that both boats began to sink. And that is a great fish story. And then we get to the heart of this passage. Uh, which is this interaction that we have towards the end between Jesus and Peter. And this exchange sets the stage for their relationship going forward and really for the rest of Peter's life, what we read about him through Gospels and the book of Acts. What's really going on here? What do we see happening here? In some ways, this is a fun story. It's, It's popular in children's Bibles. There are just so many fish. And so we can talk about it and laugh and joke about it. But for Peter, this is a life changing event, this experience that he has just had with Jesus Christ. Because he has just experienced both the power and the grace of Jesus Christ in one episode. The fish are to Peter a gift, they are a blessing. There's something that he would not have been able to achieve on his own. And yet for Jesus, this is an effortless task that he has brought here. The New Testament uh, commentator N.T. Wright encourages us to imagine in our own life, imagine in your own life, Jesus showing up in the midst of your day and asking for your help and then demanding you to do something in your area of own expertise that you saw as being pointless and futile. Something that you knew wasn't going to accomplish anything and yet you do it because he's asked you to only to succeed beyond your wildest dreams. This is what has just happened with Peter. Imagine being faced with the power and the authority of Jesus Christ in this way, but also with the love and grace of God at the same time, in the same event. How would you respond to it? It may be that some of you have had an experience like this in your life before, that you can say, yes, I can point to a time in my life when something similar to this happened, maybe not exactly like this. But some of you may also be thinking, you know what, I'd love to have an experience like this. I'd love to have some sort of show of the miraculous power of God's, uh, of God's power and love in this way, in my life. It would make it so much easier to believe. If something like this happened to me, it would make it so much easier to put my faith in Jesus Christ if something like this happened to me. It'd be so much easier to follow Jesus if something like this happened to me. And it's true, experiences like this do change people's lives, like this one does for Peter and for James and for John. But I would also say that the truth is that God has given each one of us a miraculous show of His power and His holiness and his grace and love through the cross of Jesus Christ. What Jesus did for Peter is miraculous. It's amazing. It's, it's something that we are talking about 2,000 years later, no doubt. There's a reason that we still talk about this miraculous catch of fish. But it's nothing when compared to what Jesus did on the cross for each one of us. Taking away our sin, giving us eternal life, Our faith shouldn't be in the miracle of the fish, but in the fact that Jesus Christ died and rose for us because there is no greater miracle than that one. I think so often we are looking for the fish story in our lives. We want that sort of miraculous event to happen instead of looking back to the cross and what Jesus did there. That's where we should focus. He came to save us, all of us who are lost in that place. Peter's response to Jesus in this story is, is sort of new, at least from a gospel perspective and, and what we've seen so far. And yet it might be said that we can learn that this is a faithful or the faithful way to respond to Jesus when we are faced with who he really is. Because Peter falls down at Jesus's knees and he says, get away from me and declares himself a sinner. It echoes the calling of the prophet Isaiah uh, in chapter 6 of his book. Some of you may be familiar with that story. But Isaiah is given a vision of the Lord sitting on his throne. And his response is to fall down on his face and to say, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. The Lord of hosts. This is what happens when sinful people are brought into the presence of a holy God. This is the way, at least, we should respond when we're brought into the presence of a holy God that we fall down on our knees in repentance. I like uh, the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Some of you have, may have read this book before, written by C.S. Lewis. And there's this great scene in that book where they're talking about Aslan, who is the Christ figure in these books. And Mr. Beaver, who is actually a beaver, is talking with the children. And he says this. He's telling them about Aslan. And he says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, then they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is what God is like. He is holy. He is all-powerful. He is transcendent. We should fall down our knees on our knees before him in confession and in repentance, acknowledging our sin, but also recognizing that this God is also good. And he loves us. And he sent his son to die for us. What both Isaiah and Luke show us in the the responses in this way or what Isaiah and Peter show us in responding this way is that when we are faced with God's holiness, when his power over this world and our lives is made clear to us, then there's really only one faithful way we can respond, to repent, to recognize our sin, to turn away from it in order to follow him wherever that may lead. And both of these passages come with a call story attached to them as well. After Isaiah falls on his knees, after Peter falls on his knees, and Isaiah, God says, who will go? Whom can we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. In this story, the fish story, uh, Peter's call here is less of an invitation as much as just a a declaration that Jesus makes over him. There's really not a choice that Peter's given. He says, from now on, you're not catching fish anymore, but you are going to catch people. This is what I have in store for you. Each one of us, when we're faced with God's holiness, when we're faced with God's power, when we're faced with God's love and grace, when we come to recognize that in our lives, we have a choice what are we going to do? We can choose to repent and follow like Peter does. We can also choose to not repent and not follow. Thank you very much, Jesus, but my life is fine just the way it is. But this isn't to live by faith. This is not the way that Jesus calls us to live. He calls us to be his disciples, to be his followers to participate in his ministry in the world, in his building of his kingdom here on earth, to give our lives to him. I saw a video uh, several years ago of a, of a woman named Jill Briscoe giving a talk. I don't know if any of you are familiar with her. She's a, a British woman. She's 89 years old. Uh, she was speaking at a women's conference several years ago. I got to watch the video later, and it helped me reflect on what it means to be called to follow Jesus, to be fishers of people. And Jill Briscoe, she, uh, she was talking about how, uh, at first, that she was this British woman. She grew up in Liverpool, and how, as a child, she would pray as the Germans were dropping bombs on her city. And she would pray to God that he would deliver them. And then she talked about how some 20 years later in the same hometown of Liverpool, she was going to concerts uh, where teenagers were going to see a band called the Beatles. And she was sharing the gospel with them uh, when these, this early days of the Beatles. And this is a woman whose ministry has taken her all over the world to teach the Bible and to preach the gospel. And there were two things that stood out to me in what she said in her teaching. And the first one was this. Somebody asked her, you're called to ministry. How did you know? How did you know that you were called to ministry? And she said, because I have Jesus. Because I have Jesus. I like the way that she thinks about it. She says, if you know Jesus, if you put your hope in him for your salvation, then you have been called to ministry. You are called to ministry to follow, to be his disciple, to become fisher, a fisher of people. It's as simple as that. It's what the New Testament refers to as the priesthood of all believers. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, then you have a role to play in ministering to other people and to spreading the gospel throughout the world. So that was the first point she made that, that stood out to me. And then the second thing that she stood out, uh, which followed after this, was how she described a call to ministry. What does that mean? What does it mean to be called to ministry? And she said, uh, for everyone, this is how she said it. She said, for everyone, look down between your two feet. Look down between your two feet. And that plot of ground is your mission field. Look down between your two feet. And that plot of ground between them is your mission field. Wherever you find yourself, that is where God has you. And so start there. Start there. She went on to give three points to remember about this idea. She says, number one is this, go where you're called, go where you're called Two: stay where you're put and three, give all you've got until you're done. Go where you're called, stay where you're put and give all you've got until you're done. And then she adds a little parenthetical statement to the last one. And God decides when you're done. And God decides when you're done. I found her points helpful. The idea that all are called to follow. All are called to follow in some way. If Jesus has claimed your life in this way, then you are called to follow him wherever he would send you. Now, following doesn't necessarily mean selling everything that you have and going to a far away place. Some of us have done that in this church, but not all of us will. For some of you, being called means staying right where you are. For all of us, it means holding our possessions loosely and praying that God would show us where we are called and who we are supposed to be reaching out to. The second point is this, stay where you're put, which recognizes that wherever you are, that's where God has you. I remember uh, my senior year of college having a conversation with a friend of mine, and I was uh, near the end of that time. I was about to graduate. I had no idea what I was doing after I graduated, and I was lamenting, and I said to her, if I just knew what God's will for my life was, then then I would know what to do. Then I could go, you know, go to the right place. I don't want to mess this up. She said, Mike, God's will for your life is for you to know him. God's will for your life is for you to know him, and the rest is details, Her point was this, wherever you are, God has you there. And there is a way for you to pursue God, to be faithful, to be his disciple. It's not that God doesn't call us to specific places, but she said, don't stress out about it so much because wherever you are, that is where God has called you to be. I think a lot of times in our life as Christians, we get caught up thinking, where is God calling me next? Where is God calling me next? Where is God calling me next? And we lose sight of the fact that God has called you to be right where you are. And so stay where you're put and focus there on ministering to the people around you, wherever that is, until God calls you to another place. That's the city or town or area that you live in. For most of us, that means Prague right now. It means whatever job you're in, whatever you are a student, whatever family you're in, whoever you interact with on a regular basis, whatever house or flat or neighborhood you live in, God has you there for a reason. God has you there for a reason. It's not to say you can't ever leave, but wait until God calls you to a new place and he will make it clear to you. And then the third point is this. Give all you've got until you're done. And God decides when you're done. It reminds me of the verse that says, in all that you do, work at it with all of your heart as though working for the Lord and not for men. And then God will give you an inheritance as your reward. Work for the Lord. Wherever he has you, wherever he's put you, whatever season of life you're in, see what God has in store for you and work as the working for him. This means more, uh, uh, it means about being about God's purposes, wherever he has you. It doesn't mean you just work and work and work till you're exhausted. We need to remember that God has worked rest into the fabric of his creation. But it means following him and being about his purposes. This is what discipleship looks like. To follow him in this way. I want to close today with a quote uh, from N.T. Wright uh, about uh, this passage and uh, what he says about being fishers of people. He says this, Jesus doesn't want to leave anybody out. His call to Peter and to others that they should now help him in catching people came precisely in order that the good news would go out wider and wider reaching as many people as possible. He goes on to say, when Jesus calls, he certainly does demand everything, but only because he has given everything himself and has plans in store for us and for the world that we would never have dreamed of. Amen. Let us pray, friends. Gracious God, we pray this morning and give you thanks uh, for your gracious and generous provision for us. Lord, for all the ways that we have been able to to witness uh, your miraculous power, your holiness in our lives, for all the ways that we have received your grace and your generosity. And we pray, Lord, that we would hear this call that you give to all of your people to come and to follow you wherever you may be leading us. Lord, uh, you have led us to right to where we are. We pray we would be your faithful servants and witnesses right where you have us. And Lord, when it is time for us to go elsewhere, we pray that you would make us open to follow you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.